One of the most powerful ways I've found to deepen my meditation practice has been to go on retreat. In fact, one of my favorite authors, Roger Walsh, says, to advance, I retreat. And I find that quite accurate. In a way, it takes leaving one's normal situation to go deep. And I wanted to share that my teaching partner and I, Emily Horn, are leading a week-long meditation retreat this spring on the theme of mind hacking. And during that retreat, we're going to be exploring five mind training practices that we consider to be essential to hacking the mind, to reprogramming the operating system of consciousness itself. And those include concentration, mindfulness, heartfulness, inquiry, and awareness. This retreat's going to happen in the mountains of North Carolina in Flat Rock, and it's going to involve a lot of silent meditation practice, also some social meditation. It's going to be a very small, intimate group. And we're also going to be exploring how to use technology in a conscious way. Because let's be honest, if you go on a long meditation retreat, many of us check our phones and check the internet, even though we're not supposed to. So we wanted to include that in a conscious way in this retreat. And we're really excited to be exploring these things over the course of a full week in the mountains of North Carolina, starting on March 29th. So we'd love, if you're interested in this, to check it out. It's at BuddhistGeeks.com slash retreats. Buddhist Geeks. Exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. So this is kind of a, a final area of exploration that I wanted to touch on with you. And um, it's one that I feel like is constantly uh, confounding me. And that is the relationship between you know what i often hear one of my own teachers talk about the the conserver and adapter spectrum or the conserver and adapter conserver and innovator positions and you mentioned something in our last conversation about the way that often on the innovation side we can um fool ourselves or delude ourselves with a kind of not so subtle or sometimes subtle arrogance about how we're going to improve upon, you know, these Asian wisdom traditions and make them faster, you know, more efficient, more relevant, uh, etc. And that's something, you know, I, I have to say with Buddhist geeks, that's something that we've explored quite a bit, you know, is, is the, uh, the innovation side of that spectrum. And yet, you know, just the fact that we're Buddhist geeks and not, you know, <laughs> something else, Mm -hmm. uh, points to the tension that is at the heart of, you know, our exploration and also sounds like, you know, yours as well. And that is how do these two things really, um, work together or force each other, you know, as you're talking earlier about the way that awakening and responsibility kind of feed back on each other. Um, yeah, I was curious to hear more of your perspective because you started and, and spent much of your practice in Asian monasteries and really kind of got a taste for some of those 
conservative forms. And I think you also describe yourself as conservative. Um, so, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I actually just had the chance to talk about this last night in, uh, in, our, in our conversation. In my personal experience, the best antidote to this problem is gratitude. We cultivate gratitude for cultivate gratitude for the traditions that really exist because we really experience them. We actually experience them. We don't just read about them. And we find that they're helpful. And so we have that sense of gratitude, not not because, oh, good, those people are doing those good things, but, oh, good, I'm a better person because of this. That's very important. We also have gratitude for the creativity and the inventiveness that has been demonstrated over thousands of years. I think that the, there are a lot of dangers in modern Buddhist practice, uh, as there have always been, but they're perhaps a little bit different in the modern age. I think to begin, our basic theme, the most consistent theme I have heard since coming back from Asia, and I should say before I went to Asia, I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I had no practice before I entered the monastery. I hadn't read any book. I hadn't read a single book about Buddhism or Zen, um, <laughs> spirituality in general, when I entered the monastery. Wow. I had practiced meditation for probably a total of about an hour. Uh, and I hated it. So that was me when I entered the monastery uh, at 19. When I came back, I saw things that were very surprising to me. <laughs> I was very surprised about a lot of the forms here. And one of the things that surprised me the most was that our basic theme seems to be we can do it better. That's the, num- that's the most common theme that I hear in Western Buddhist leadership. We can do it better. They did a good job. That was good. But we can do it better. And this is a very good thing. It's very exciting to me that we have this attitude. I have this attitude. It's also very frightening to me because it's very easy for that statement to become, as you say, arrogant. It's very easy for that statement to become uh, dismissive. And until we appreciate how careful and subtle the teachings have been, only then are we in the humble position to begin to claim maybe I, maybe we could do it even better than that. So the, the real concern is that without that sense of gratitude, it's no longer thinking we can do it better than something wonderful, but it suddenly becomes, I'm going to subconsciously perceive that as pretty bad so that the bar is set low for me to do it better. It's easy for that to happen on, in subtle ways. Uh, and that's, a, that's quite dangerous. So here, we struggle with this constantly because we have specific people 
who we serve. And when you have real people who you really serve, then you see how true it is that this is a medicine, which has to be made for specific people in, in, in specific situations. And when you really want to serve them, you're going to use anything you can get your hands on. And so you're grateful, on the one hand, for the people who have been creative and inventive because we now need to be creative and inventive in order to work with specific people in specific circumstances. And yet we begin to see how useful the tools that have been passed down have been. And we see again and again, it's much more useful than I had thought it was. Uh, the, the experience for me that happened many times was being in Asia training with a traditional teacher and suddenly thinking, well, yeah, he's doing a good job, but really I have a sense of how this should be and someday we'll get beyond this. And, and sometimes it got more negative than that. <laughs> I did a lot of internal complaining while I was there. A lot of it. It was, it was a pretty good theme for me. <laughs> I don't want to be here. Why do I have to act Japanese or Indian or whatever it is? I don't know. Ah, that happened a lot. And then it happened repeatedly that I realized, oh, no. I was completely wrong. There is an excellent reason it's being done this way. And I didn't know it because I wasn't at a point when it was like you can't just know everything. You can't just have everything explained to you, especially in an experiential, a mystical tradition. You're not going to just intellectually get the whole thing and figure it out. There was no way I could have imagined the, the reason it, it was set up this way. So that happened once, twice, a dozen times, and then the gratitude began to come, a deep gratitude. That gratitude isn't against creativity, in the same way that when we're grateful for people who have been creative in the past, that's not against uh, taking care of, of their inventions. The gratitude guides us into a balance. And here, as we carefully work to serve more and more people in more and more ways, we have these conversations. We try this, we try that, and we see as we're deepening our own practice, on the one hand, some things that can be changed, and on the other hand, things that are structured so well that we're not going to put our time into trying to change that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, I've, I've, I find myself, you know, as, as I've, I've gone along with this crazy, weird path that... I, I, it seems like there's a kind of pendulum swing as well in this where, um, I don't know if, if you've experienced this, where for periods of time I, I sort of notice I swing to the, to the kind of innovative side and I'm really, you know, I'm really questioning all of the kind of invisible allegiances that I have to thinking, you know, mm -hmm. that this is the way and this is the only way, you know, to do things. Mm -hmm. And then I notice, then I, then the swing back, you know, as you're mm -hmm. describing and noticing, oh wow, I was really wrong about that, and um, and 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 there's something weird that I've often wondered yeah. about, and I, and I think this is kind of part of where Buddhism does collide with 
um, the Western you know notion of of modernity, which mm-hmm. is a kind of a cyclical worldview where things from the past come back in new ways, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then the, the linearity of time kind of breaks down. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like this ongoing progression, but it's like this thing which at some times seems like progress and at other times it's like remembering some <laughs> deep ancient truth that's like way deeply embedded in the universe and exactly. like didn't get fabricated or come out of anyone's mind. Exactly. Oh, uh, one, if I could say, can I give you my favorite example of this? Oh, please. So back in the old days over in Asia, where those weird people live, they believe, could you imagine, that there's reincarnation. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about? How could you believe in such a thing? Well, anyway, they believe in it. This rebirth thing. And because of that, as you do your practice, as you're doing this practice, uh, they believe that you may have things come up from the past that you need to work through because it's your karma. It's who you are. You can't just ignore that. You can't just throw it away. You have to really take it seriously. And that could be from the past in this life, or it could be from from other past lives. It could be back a long time ago. You may not even be able to understand it, but there it is the stored up poison and pain, you have to work through it. That's what they believe. Well, we don't believe in that, so we don't need to work through that stuff. We're just going to get straight on to insight, Mm -hmm. straight on to liberation. What do you mean purify? Come on. We all know that there's no such thing as rebirth. And now you get here the rediscovery, which is lots of people, now there's a backlash to this. People say, no, we need to do, the problem with meditation is it isn't really helping with personal problems, with emotional issues. We have problems. We can't just let all that go. Why would Buddhism teach you should just let all that go? That's not smart. We need to work through our issues. We need to fully experience whatever imbalances or, or stored up poison and pain, let's call it. <laughs> We need to work through that, but, but within the context that it's the suffering that has stored up from this current life. But soon enough, I bet people will start to say, no, it's actually, some of it's stored up in, our, in the basic patterns of how our brains work, and that's stuff that's been passed on for millions of years. Yeah, or the epigenetics of our DNA. Yeah, right, and exactly. Our ancestors, our ancestors' DNA right. in our bodies Exactly, out. so we, we need to work through all of that stuff. And it wouldn't surprise me if we just end up with our own scientific version of past lives and the suffering and poison and pain that's been passed on that we now need to actually work through or else it's not a complete path. Why did those early Westerners think you could just go straight to insight? <laughs> so so, uh, so uh, to me, this is a very funny example because uh, it's a way of, of, of moving beyond the details of exactly what you think rebirth or reincarnation or evolution or, or whatever it is really is and see that that from a practical perspective, it's not about a, a, a dogmatic view. It's practical. It's how do you actually do this practice so that it actually works for real people. And that's what's actually being taught. But until we've given ourselves the time to explore that, 
to see it for ourselves until we've achieved a certain amount of expertise about what is really happening beneath culture. We're not in a position to restructure our own culture to present the same thing. And this is very hard for people to tell the difference between spirituality and culture. Spirituality is the most foundational level, but then culture is above that, and then there's other things above that in terms of our kinds of assumptions. At least this is my experience having lived for many years in many different cultures. Mm. Uh, our, most, our, our cultural assumptions are very, very basic, and we can easily confuse them for spiritual truths. But the issue is that in order to find the spiritual truth, we, we off, especially if it's conveyed in a cultural form, we often need to spend enough time with that cultural form to see under it rather than just discard the form and assume that our intellectual idea of that spiritual truth is the real thing. Okay, yeah. So, so I think what you're saying is really interesting because it's, it's, in some ways it's, a, it's an integration of, of what I was just trying to kind of explore, which is how, how that conserving mindset you know, helps there be genuine innovation, actually. Mm-hmm. How it's That's right. required. That's right. For it, it's uh, someone told me who who was uh, you know spent many years in the corporate world uh, doing innovation work and was and then turned their attention toward um, uh, cre- creating a kind of Buddhist practice space. He said what he learned at his last uh, project was that an innovation has a long uh, incubation cycle, mm-hmm. much longer than we think, like decades yeah. rather than years. Right. That's right. That's right. So that's interesting. And um, it, it makes me kind of think about one trend that you're very much involved with, with that's playing out right now and that really seems connected to this, which is the Buddhist response to the mindfulness movement. Mm-hmm. And that's, for some reason, that's getting a lot of attention right now. And it's something that I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you know, both classically trained and a self-admitted conservative practitioner. <laughs> admitted. <laughs> <laughs> and you heard it here on Buddhist Geeks. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, you know, so much of, of the work that you're doing is is in a sort of secular context, um, mindfulness, you know, that, that's the way it's um, being mm-hmm. uh, developed and mm-hmm. taught. Right. And so it really brings up some fantastic questions, I think, about the relationship between those two movements and, and how those are connected with this whole question that we've been exploring. Yeah, thanks. This is fun. Uh... And it actually might be that it might be true that you'll hear this here first. I don't think I've ever said this before, uh, so I'll even hear it here first. <laughs> but, uh, I I feel, if you don't mind my being uh, proud of our work here for a moment, I feel really happy with the Modern Mindfulness for Schools program because it is secular. And that makes me very, very happy. And if I could say, again, I already apologized for being proud, or you might say arrogant, right? That's a theme for this conversation, right? <laughs> so I'll jump in. Uh, 
that because of the fact that I spent so many years in traditional contexts, I was therefore somewhat uniquely qualified to create a truly secular version of this practice because I stayed there long enough to, to some small extent. I don't claim to be fully enlightened or a master or anything like that. I, I in fact, claim the opposite. I'm not fully enlightened. I'm not a master. I've met masters, and I can tell you right now I'm not one of them. But I'm doing my best, and I did stay and train for a little while. And because of that, it went to see through the structure to something that motivated the creation of that structure. And because of that, in seeing that, it's possible then to put that you might call it essence, into a different location, and a new structure emerges. So the way we set it up was that I, being something of an expert on the subject, uh, worked in collaboration with other people, teachers and students in a public school and, and the administration, but mostly teachers and the, and the students. A group of experts came together to create this program. And I, because I had spent enough time with the old structures to see through them, knew what could be discarded and was happy, and believe me, very happy to discard it because we need something new for that context because this is a medicine. It has to fit the, the situation. And so what did we do? Well, I paid attention. What is it the teachers say the most throughout the day? I kept records. And the two things the teachers say the most throughout the day are something like focus or pay attention or listen up, something like that. They'll say something about focus, class, eyes to the front, whatever it is they're going to say, something like focus, and something like relax, calm down, settle down, everyone get in your seat, stop hitting Susie, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, the, the relax side. So calm down and pay attention. Good news. That's this path. If you, that's, what, that's the essence. That's what you can take out. Now, you need all the cultural contexts, of course, in order to get that across. And we also have that. I think we're often blind to how very culture-oriented our own practices are. It's hard for us to see since we're always in it. But the, the essence there is simply focus and relaxation. No other, no other aspects were needed for the creation of this program. So we have a system that provides methods that allow what teachers are already trying to teach to be successfully achieved by their students. Mm -hmm. That's extremely exciting, and it's exciting in a large way because it's, a, it's an innovation that's been informed by the careful and experiential exploration of, of our awareness and of how teaching in school is actually done. There's so many questions I, I want to pepper you with, but I'll, I'll try to keep it limited. Um, one is, um, you know, with, with the work in schools, this is, a, this is something that came up as a result of a conversation that we recently had with one of our own teachers who, uh, her name's Trudy Goodman, and we... Yeah. We, I think, not so skillfully titled the episode Stealth Buddhism. 
Uh-huh. Um, right. I think that that's become a little bit famous, right? <laughs> I, don't, I think infamous would be a better word. But, <laughs> um, you know, there, there's part of what we explored, and, and the term stealth Buddhism actually came from her ex-husband. Um, it wasn't something that she said, which is part of the reason it was unskillfully titled. But, um, you know, part of what we were exploring was, you know, what is this thing that you're calling the essence that is changing forms, and it goes back to what we're talking about with conserving and adapting. Um, is it Buddhism? You know, because if it's Buddhism, then that presents a real problem culturally, you know, at least governance-wise with the whole separation of church and state, um, religion and, you know, and education and politics. Um, but, you know, if it is Buddhism, or if we could say that it's Buddhism, uh, you know, maybe the issue, and this is what I wonder about, and I, I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, maybe the issue in part might be our ideas of the separation of secularity of the secular world and the, the spiritual or the sacred and the non-sacred. You know, what if the, the notion of church and state and the separation of that was, you know, was meant to protect from a certain overt kind of hijacking of ideology, but what if it's actually keeping us now from being able to, to integrate the sacred back into our public lives? You know, what, what if that's part of what this um, exploration of Buddhism and mindfulness and the tension between them is actually more pointing to, and instead we're trying to force our, our deep understanding of, of what we've learned through Buddhist practice into um, something that's non-offensive to people's basically uh, reactivity to anything that sounds like ideology um, or religion. Anyway, those those are just some thoughts. I'd be curious to hear you know what you what you think. This is this is a lot. You did <laughs> you did bring up many I different issues. I apologize for that. Uh, I I think it would be fun, I'm actually working on it now, to create a mindfulness system that's taught entirely in terms of Greek philosophy. Interesting. We teach it with, in Greek, meaning we use Greek words to teach it. Uh, mm-hmm. And, for example, ataraxia or, or eudaimonia, mm-hmm. we use Greek words and we, we're clear that this mindfulness thing whatever it is, was being explored there also. Yes. And we don't think of that as a religion. That's a philosophy. We even say that it's a philosophy. Yes. And hopefully that will clarify the issue uh, for, for many people. Because I do think that it's a strange thing because... From my perspective, the thing that everyone everyone is worried that mindfulness is Buddhism, but from my perspective, it isn't. I was in a conversation with someone around this recently who said that what's being taught in schools is Buddhism. And I said, if you took that program, the thing that's being taught there, and brought it over to a traditional Asian Buddhist and showed it to them and asked them, is this Buddhism? They would say no. So who are you to tell them what their religion is. They don't think it's Buddhism. Go to some village where they don't know anything about this issue. (laughs) Show them the program. They'll say, that's great. It's really great you're doing that. And I say, is this Buddhism? Is this your religion? And they won't see any connection. So it's a very 
it's a strange subject. I think if we were to put it in, in our own cultural context, namely Greek philosophy, which is something I'm quite interested in, uh, we might be able to, to cut through some of this. So that's something that I think would be uh, quite fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and, but you know, the challenge I think comes up, and I think it's, I think it's part of what maybe the folks that are intro, introducing mindfulness, you know, creating mindfulness programs, um, I think struggle with is that they do see the connection and that, and that that connection is very, yeah, it's but the basis of, of what they're creating, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. the thing that's informed them the most. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. If you haven't taken the practice far enough to see through it, then you're stuck in it. It's see through what? The practice. Mm. The practice is a medicine. What's health? Buddhism is a medicine. Mm-hmm. It has no substance. It has no inherent value. It's only useful in conjunction with uh, sickness. And until you have gone, until you've finished your antibiotic treatment, <laughs> so that you, let me put it this way, you, you, you have an infection. What should you do then? Take antibiotics. Great. Now, if you didn't have the infection, should you have taken it? No, but you do have the infection, so you take the antibiotics. Once you're, should you stop taking it on your third day? No, do not stop taking it on your third day. But once you get to your final day and the infection is gone, stop taking it. Mm-hmm. It will make you sick unless you stop taking it. Right. In the same way, until we've seen through all of this, we have to see that whatever this essence is, it isn't that it is Buddhism. It's that it's Buddhism's job, along with everyone else's job, to be that. But that isn't something that's so easy to, to talk about. So we have this clumsy thing called Buddhism and this other clumsy thing called Greek philosophy and this other clumsy thing called science. And we're doing our best. We're doing our best to approximate that. But it's difficult if you were to ask a scientist to say, what is it that you study? And you can't put that in terms of science. In fact, even if you said, put it in terms of science, I doubt an honest scientist could answer that question. Because that's the thing we're trying to get at. And it's the same thing with, with, with Buddhism and with other uh, honesty and compassion-based human endeavors. So that's a matter of staying with a practice until we can see through it, and then we're happy to discard it. Yes. I think that the desire to, the thought, it's very confusing for us because I'd say you want it, the goal, of course, is that you stop taking antibiotics. But if you, don't, if you stop too soon, then you're still going to want them deeply, subconsciously. And then you're going to make programs that, that are based on that. We have to cut through it. We have to actually see through it so that we can see, oh, that's why the Buddha talked the way he did. Oh, that's why Jesus talked the way he did. Oh, that's why those scientific experiments turn out that way. Okay, so it's sort of pointing, again, to some sort of essential or universal kind of uh, dimension of, of this whole thing. Yeah, and 
again, I, I hope you feel a little dissatisfaction in the words I, you just used. I do. To say it because I we do. should because we because that isn't it either. That's another attempt to get across something that uh, the moment we turn it into human perception and culture easily becomes dogmatic. So we, we have to be careful about that. It doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do to help each other, but it means that it's very difficult to define what health is. It's a lack of diseases, but what is health exactly? It's difficult. Yeah, what, what is, uh, to use the Greek, what is eudaimonia? What is exactly. human flourishing? Exactly. What is it, really? Mm-hmm. It's not so easy to, to find. And so I think it would be great to actually use that word. Let's just use that word. I think that would be fun. But in any case, we didn't use that word for our program. Our program has focus and relax as the key skills. Mm-hmm. And then what else did we do? We took relaxation to make it secular by using techniques that the kids were already using. <laughs> so that can't be, it can't be that we're bringing something in that, right. it, it, that doesn't belong there. Right. I can remember all of my teachers saying those, those phrases. Yeah. And, and then what about the listening? The teacher's saying listening. So we use listening as a form of practice because we want the children to know how to listen and to notice that listening is a source of wisdom. It is a source of wisdom. When we listen to each other, we learn. When we listen to ourselves, we learn. Listening is a, is a, is a gateway, but you could even say is wisdom. And then what about the, there's a lot discussed about metta, the word in, in, in uh, Pali is metta. And it means friendliness. So there's a lot discussed about is that Buddhist. Not, mm-hmm. well, it you could say is. I mean, you say it in Pali, so I guess it's Buddhist. <laughs> but yep. but the, the importance of it is goal setting. We're trying to set a good goal. We're trying to set positive and realistic goals. And so that's what we do. We just teach the kids to dream. Dream, what do you want to achieve with your life? What do you want to achieve today? What do you want to do? And we ask them to set those goals. So if you get to the point when you've seen the point of the practice, then you don't need the forms. But it's important for us to have the honesty with ourselves that until we've taken whatever practice it is, as, as I say, I've, had, I've been in a lot of different practice settings. I've practiced quite a bit in Native American ceremonies. I was brought up Christian. Uh, I very much enjoy the scientific endeavor. So all of these, and I, and I have to admit, I do see science as a, as a religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. Nothing, I don't see religion as bad, so I think that that's okay. Okay, that, that, <laughs> and that kind of ties with, with, my, with my question about of se- separation of these things. It's, it gets tricky when religion becomes everything. Or we see the religion uh, of everything. Yeah, right. The ancient Greeks who were the founders of modern science, yeah. that was definitely religion. We, they called it philosophy, of course, but it was, that's what they considered religion. That was how religion was in that society. That was the next step of the pagan traditions. And if you read it, you, you see that. They talk about God 
Zeus all the time and, and other gods and other religious concepts. And that's, that's fine. There's nothing bad about that. And then, and then the various aspects, materialism and such, uh, came out of that exploration. And, and so here we are with science. And, that, and science then has certain assumptions that are made. Right, right. Yeah, the, I've been reading recently a book by Alexander Bard and uh, uh, a co-author called uh, the, uh, Synthism, Creating God in the Internet Age. And uh-huh. one of the ways, they're, they're geeky Swedish philosophers, so one of the ways they talk about, about this is that you know, underlying every philosophy is a, kind of, is a sort of metaphysical blind faith in the way right. reality is that you can't right. avoid. Right. And, and in, that, in that sense, everything is religion because we always have this, you know, everything is material or everything is mind or everything. Right. You know, there's some metaphysical assumption that everything is this way right. um, that we can't avoid when we take a position. Exactly. And so, great. Good news. Each of those assumptions has a practice associated with it yes. that transcends those assumptions. That's an interesting point. Every one, and Buddhism is certainly this way. Buddhism gives you a set of assumptions, a set of, you could say, hypotheses. And the practice of it, the practice of it is what ultimately ends those. So the way that I phrase this, if you want to put it in terms of feedback loops, which is how I put most <laughs> things, is that you need something, in order for something to survive, it has to be a feedback loop. It has to create something that it can feed on. Otherwise, it can't survive. Feedback loops are how, are how existence functions. Everything has to feed on something, and something that consistently exists is able to create what it feeds on. So if you have something like Buddhism, it has to it has to rob resources from the rest of existence in order to survive. It must do that. And in that way it's a feedback loop. It creates assumptions. And then it feeds on the on the attention of the people who carry those assumptions in order to exist and perpetuate itself, promulgate yes. itself through time. Yes. So that's okay. The question is, are we being really honest? Honest enough to see that embedded within each of those patterns that together you call Buddhism, embedded right there, are we being truly honest to find and then experience and then, and then uh, live by the characteristic in each of those feedback loops that ends itself? That's a wisdom-based tradition, that there is something embedded right within it that ends itself, that destroys itself. Yes. That's essential to directly find. And, and Buddhism to be, well, let's put it this way. My teacher, Harada Roshi, says, if Buddhism is something you believe in, then you'd be better off without it. I think it's a brilliant way of teaching. Yeah, he's, he's, he's pointing to that, 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 the feedback loops you know, that lead to the end of, of feedback loops. Or- exactly, and the end of themselves. So this path incorporates our entire lives, and this path collapses and takes us with them. So that 
is essential to directly experience. And only through practice do we experience it. In the same way as science. Science keeps on confusing itself, you know, and finding out it was wrong because of the practice of science. And that's even embedded in the, you know, many ways of describing what science is, you know, that it... Right. Exactly. It's right there, like you say, yeah. Exactly. Hmm. Okay. Well, hey, so are you, um, this has been a fantastically fun conversation. I feel like uh, I've lost myself many times <laughs> during this, <laughs> so thank you. Um, I hope it was uh, helpful and useful, you know, for those that are tuning in and um, I hope people will check out your work more thoroughly and, and see what you're up to. Yeah, I hope that this that this description of everything we said, that it's clear that that's what we're doing here. That's what we're living here. We're living out the solution of these issues. We're not just thinking them out. We're living them out. And so if anyone wants to do that, please be in touch. And I hope that uh, when you when you do get in touch with us, we still have room to uh, to bring you here and give you a little bed on the floor <laughs> and uh, fully participate in the direct exploration through a practice and through a life of these great questions, so that we can find answers that are useful in the world. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.